Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Everyone deserves to be safe. The LEAVE initiative provides mental health support to those impacted by intimate partner violence, also known as domestic violence. We take a holistic approach to help survivors of any age find ways to heal and thrive. Our virtual and in-person services include crisis and individual counseling sessions, support groups, psychotherapy, community sense of emergency housing, and linkages to a variety of community resources. The LEAVE initiative is brought to the community by the Jewish Board in partnership with UJA Federation. For more information, contact us confidentially at lave at jbfcs.org. That's L-E-V at jbfcs.org or 646-273-1800. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association or JOMA podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I am a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member. And today I'm really, really honored and really, really excited to be speaking to Dr. Mel Hauser. Before I introduce her, I'm going to remind you, please reach out to me if there's someone you want to hear, if you yourself want to be interviewed, if there's a topic you, you want me to cover, or if you have comments on the podcast I've done so far, I want to hear from you. Please reach out to us at health, H-E-A-L-T-H, at joma.org. So Dr. Mel Hauser is an autistic family physician with a clinical focus on providing primary care for neurodivergent patients across the lifespan. She is the founder and executive director of All Brains Belong Vermont, a nonprofit 501c3. She can be reached at allbrainsbelong.org, not All Brains Belong Vermont, but allbrainsbelong.org. This is an organization in Montpellier, Vermont, that uses universal design principles to provide healthcare, social connection opportunities, and neurodiversity-related education for kids and adults. At age 37, Dr. Hauser was diagnosed as autistic, ADHD, dyspraxic, dyslexic, and dyscalculic. These are um, words dyspraxic, dyslexic, and dyscalculic for various um, learning disabilities. Dyslexia is a difficulty with the written word, dyscalculic with, with mathematical operations, um, and dyspraxia is a little more complicated, and she does talk a little bit about what she means by that um, during the talk. She's also the parent of an autistic five-year-old who is her guru of so many keys to the universe. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Hauser. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. We could talk forever. We already have been. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive into it. Let's talk about what we mean by neurodivergent, because when you say all brains belong, right, you're talking about not just the what we call normal or neurotypical. I think there's other terms for it as well that aren't as stigmatizing or not stigmatizing. What's the word I should use? Um, saying that that's the only good kind of brain, but we also talk about neurodivergent. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I would say that first, let's talk about neurodiversity. Okay. Um, and, you know, neurodiversity, like biodiversity, it's the full spectrum of the of, of, of all of the different life forms biodiversity neurodiversity is all of the ways that brains learn think and communicate 
So um, the neurodiversity paradigm um, is, is such that rather than say, you know, this is one type of normal brain and then everybody else, um, neurodiversity says that we all have different brains. We all have unique patterns of strengths and patterns of things that are challenging. Um, and so when we all exist on this continuum, so that, that as the premise, neurodivergent refers to, it's an umbrella term referring to the one in five people whose brains function in, in ways that significantly differ from the majority of people's brains. And sometimes these patterns of brain functioning get names like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, on and on and on. Um, but, but, but really it's, it's, it's such that neurodivergent people's brains work in ways that significantly depart from like the default way that society offers most things. Um, you know, healthcare, education, employment. So neurodivergent people, that's one in five people. That's a lot of people a lot. whose brains work in ways that make it really hard to access so many of the major social structures. That's a great explanation. And I want to also just have a quick um, explanation of why we're using autistic first language. And I will say that I've done other talks about this. I interviewed Dr. Stephen Shore of the famous, if you've seen one person on the spectrum, you've seen one person on the spectrum. And I also interviewed the amazing Dr. Barry Prezant to interview you as well. So he's amazing. Want to hear more of you, they can go on his podcast, <laughs> which I loved, by the way, that was a great episode. So what's this autistic first thing? Yeah, you know, so, so, so autistic first, really uh, bigger, bigger umbrella term, identity first language. Um, is such that, um, you know, so, so I am autistic, ADHD, these are part of my uh, identity. They are the, the best parts of me and often the most challenging. And um, uh, in, in my medical training, I was, I was trained that you use person first language mm -hmm. for everything. I'm a person with something, you know, with a disorder. Um, so I'm a person, you know, let's say I'm a person with diabetes. I'm a person with hypertension. Um, this is different because to say um, that that something is part of your identity, it is depathologizing, right? It doesn't need to be separate from my identity. And in fact, there was a large study showing that the majority of autistic adults prefer identity first language. Um, and, but it's not everyone. It's not everyone. It really isn't. Some, and I think it's important to, to ask and respect. Exactly. You ask, you ask, you pay attention to the language that people are using and you adapt based on how someone experiences it. Absolutely. So now I really want to hear your personal journey. Go sure. back to, I don't know how far you want to go back, but you were not diagnosed until you were an adult, correct? age 37 and Whoa. like many, yeah. So like many late identified adults, I got my autism diagnosis in the context of something called autistic burnout. Autistic burnout is like a profound state of physical and mental exhaustion, like in, in, in the setting of, of heightened stress it's from years of being severely overtaxed by like the demand on your brain. And so in my instance, um, this came in the setting of compounded stress from the COVID pandemic, uh, working in a job that was a poor fit for my brain that caused me a lot of sleep deprivation, caring for sick patients in the hospital and on call and homeschooling a then three-year-old. I mean, it was a lot. Oh, yeah. For anyone. Um, and so, yeah. 
And so, you know, when we think about it, yeah, so it would be, it's a lot for anyone. Um, and when we think about um, the diagnostic criteria for autism are essentially autistic stress behaviors. And so often um, late identified adults have for decades um, uh, learned, learned to, to mask. And we're going to talk mm-hmm. about that later, mm-hmm. but you we know, can talk um, about it now, if you want, we don't have to go yeah, back sure. to it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 you know, masking is uh, a term that refers to either like intentionally or unintentionally uh, hiding elements of, of, of autistic identity. It's a, it's a social survival strategy, essentially. So you, it, it's in, and, and it, it it's often what is required uh, to, to, to cope with situations or environments um, where, you know, conforming um, and, 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 and you really are socialized in many instances to, to do that um, because you, you know, children by and large receive the message that there is one correct way to be a human. And like, when you phrase it, like, when I phrase it like that, it's like, that's not, like, how could that possibly be true? But that is the message explicitly or implicitly. Um, and, you know, what's really, what's really challenging is that um, because masking is a survival strategy, there are environments and settings where it is truly not safe to unmask. Um, and, you know, and especially when we think about the intersectionality of all of the many ways in which people are marginalized and othered in this society, um, you know, the more marginalized you are, the more marginalized aspects of your identity, um, often the less safe it is to unmask. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, un- unfortunately, research tells us that masking is an independent risk factor for suicide, completed suicide. Oh, wow. So that's, that is a, a real problem in our society. Both that uh, large groups of people are being trained from young ages to mask, and that in many instances it is unsafe to unmask. So those things are both true. So that's 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 really hard. Anyway, it also takes a lot of like brain energy to mask. Right. And so in the setting of autistic burnout. Uh, people lose those higher order executive functions to mask. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, I showed up uh, more, I I showed up like this and I didn't used to show up like this. And that's how I got my autism diagnosis. Wow. Were you a parent at that point? I was, I had a a then four-year-old, an uh, an autistic four-year-old at the time. She's now almost six. Your child was diagnosed before you? Yes, and and the irony is uh, we were diagnosed uh, two years exactly to the day, like on the anniversary of her diagnosis. It was pretty. It was a it was a really interesting universe sign. Wow! So it didn't occur to you when she was being diagnosed at what two? Yeah, she was diagnosed at two. Um, that and so, yeah, and you didn't and see so yourself it, in this at all, right? Um, and that is common. Um, I think that, that there's in, 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 in my practice where uh, of my medical practice of, of mostly autistic adults, um, the pathways to self-discovery, the, uh, the you know, my, uh, I'm the parents of an autistic child, and then I learn more about brains, and that's a common pathway. There's also the pathway of I'm an adult who's like really floundering and really having a really hard time, and I'm an autistic burnout, and 
That's my pathway to self-discovery. And then there's also the pathway of, I have particular patterns of medical conditions, physical health challenges that are more common in autistic adults. And uh, in the context of learning about that and learning that, that, that this pattern is more associated with autism, that is a path of self-discovery. Those are like the three pathways that I see a lot in my practice. For, for people who've made it to adulthood without a diagnosis. Yes. But that, that's my next question. How did you make it that far without a diagnosis? Masking. What were you doing as a child? But, but how did you, um, I, I'm really wondering, because in your list of, 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 um, of issues that you, you have told us about, um, you have autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, um, dyslexia, and dyscalculia. I don't know if you want to define those. That's yeah, a lot of things yeah. to struggle with. How did you get through school? Yeah. Um, so uh, human brains often compensate in really interesting ways. So I previously, uh, pr prior, to, prior to becoming a parent, um, I would have identified as someone who had really good executive functioning skills, meaning like these higher order uh, skills that orchestrate your life. No, I intrinsically, I don't. I just have a lot of really good external compensation strategies. I make really good lists and I make really good charts and I had really good systems the systems that can become automated. And then when something else introduced into the equation, those compensatory strategies no longer work. And then you're like, ah, what, 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 mm -hmm. brain, what am I doing? And so um, there, and, and, and in my practice, I have so many people like me who, um, uh, because of the myths and stereotypes of what these brain wiring differences are, um, uh, we don't fit that. And so it was not recognized. So as a child, I was described as like too much, too intense, too this, too that. And uh, no, I, I was just autistic. But, but did you fit in? So I think that um, I always felt different. I always felt like I was experiencing the world differently than people talked about. And I, and, and so I had a lot of friends. Um, I had a, a lot of drive for social connection, but I had a lot of social conflicts when, when my, when I, there's a mismatch of communication style or a mismatch of worldview. Uh, Dr. Damian Milton in the UK is an autistic uh, social scientist talks about the double empathy problem um, where uh, neurodivergent people uh, can connect and communicate, you know, seamlessly. And it's really, it's, it, it, it's the mismatch uh, between quote neurotypical people and autistic people where it's, uh, it's just a, a difficulty um, with a mismatched worldview and mismatched communication style. So when that, when, when, when those patterns uh, presented in throughout my life, yeah, I had, I had, I had real problems. Uh, wait, but, wait, what's, but, what's double empathy? I'm sorry, but what's double? Oh empathy? yeah. Double empathy problem. Um, so, 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 so it came, the term was coined by Dr. Damian Milton coming out of research that looked at communication patterns. Mm -hmm. Neurotypical people communicate, you know, well, autistic people, two autistic people communicate really well, really rich, robust, really emotionally, um, uh, you know, rich conversations. But it's the um, your 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 listeners won't be able to see my hand gestures. So I'm, I'm, show, <laughs> except I'm on showing you like, except on YouTube they can. <laughs> oh, perfect, perfect. Watch on so, YouTube, but it's smart. <laughs> perfect. All right. So it's the it's the it's the 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 back and forth between right. people who have different neurotypes. 
that 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 have challenges with communication. Oh, um, I thought but, it meant that you have to empathize with the way you think and the way they think at the same time, and they're not the same. Well, that's also true. Um, mm. So it's 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 um, but but that there's a lot of myths around perspective taking being hard for autistic people. I don't have a hard time perspective taking like at all. My perspective taking skills are, are really good. Um, when I'm dysregulated. I can't, I have a hard time shifting to perspective until I'm better regulated and calm, but so does everybody. And it's really just that um, uh, autistic people are more likely to be dysregulated because the environment is mo more likely to be a mismatch for my needs. So I think that's where that myth comes from. Right, um, right. It, There's it, also a myth that they're, they're not emotionally attuned or emotionally sensitive or understand feelings. There's so many myths. There's so many myths. And I think about, um, I think about, um, uh, empathy, emotions, energy, like, like, I think about it as a scent, almost like a sensory system. So you can be just like you can be less sensitive to light and sound or more sensitive to light or sound, you can be more or less mm -hmm. sensitive to other people's energy coming at you right you could um, be an incredible I'm, empath you could be an incredible exactly empath. so all the you know the the uh the all these terms that get used empath highly sensitive person mm -hmm. i mean uh, there's a lot of overlap here with right. uh, a profile of a of an autistic person right and this is why we need autistic voices <laughs> to tell us what's really going on and not people from the outside only right and so you know it's really interesting because as a parent um then an unidentified autistic person um i uh, through through facebook i started following a group run by autistic adults answering questions from quote neurotypical parents or like allegedly neurotypical parents and i found this magical like my world was opened up and mm. that was so much more helpful to me than some of the messages that come from professionals about like what you're supposed to what you're supposed to do as a parent so in the context of connecting with this group, um, I started really matching a lot of the patterns they described to my own thinking. And then when I started homeschooling my child and really understanding how her brain worked, um, uh, I recognized so much similarity that way. So I was like neuro lurking before autistic burnout. <laughs> and, and, and then like the, the deal was sealed. Um, and so when, once I got my autism diagnosis, um, it's almost like I had created this expectation that the only experts in parenting an autistic child were autistic adults. Mm -hmm. And once I got my autism diagnosis, I met my own brain rule. I started, I, and, and I, I, cause I, now I am one. I mean, I always was one, but I didn't know that. So um, it's almost like I allowed myself to start parenting intuitively. That is amazing. That is amazing. I'm thinking of a, a car analogy, except that I'm really bad at cars. I'm thinking like all the time you're trying to be a Ferrari, but really you're a Cadillac. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I also make a lot of car analogies despite knowing nothing about cars. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> but you hear my point, like, you know, you're working yeah. so hard to be something you're not. And when you realize what you are, you can be even a better you. That's exactly the point. And so many people in our society receive the message that they are broken neurotypical people when really they're, they're, they're not broken at all. Um, they're just, their brains work in ways that are different than the way they're being told is the default brain. And we know there's not a default brain, but yet that message is given. 
you know, from the, from the bottom up, that message is given. So, you know, when we talk about inclusion, uh, perceived belonging, um, only a person can tell you when they perceive that they belong. And I think inclusion begins in preschool. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, part of part of my work is in community education around this, because if little kids grow up knowing that we all have different brains that do things differently, I mean, what an amazing world this will be. So like, for example, my five-year-old, we've been talking about brains since she's two. She knows that some brains do X and some brains do Y, and it's not a big deal. And even in, as, as, a, as a physician, even when caring for you know typically developing kids, I still have these conversations because I don't want anybody growing up thinking that their brain is the default brain. Right, but I think it's also an artificial dichotomy of neurotypical versus neurodivergent. Because you said in the beginning, we all have differences. We all have differences. Exactly. Imagine if we were all the same, we'd be a bunch of robots. How boring would that be? It would, and and we would not really be able to take on solving the major problems of our day. You know, really. Sure. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. So, how do you think it's different for your five-year-old growing up? knowing she's autistic as opposed to you who took 37 years to figure it out and autistic burnout? Yeah, Um, I think that um, she is so self-aware. So she is aware of her thinking patterns and her sensing patterns, and she has language to describe it. Um, She was mostly non-speaking until about three and a half, four. And then, um, uh, and, and, and we supported her through a combination of, um, of alternative augmented communication and, um, and, 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 and really just, just, just adapting her environment to meet her needs, um, in a neurodiversity affirming paradigm. Um, and when those neural pathways connected and clicked and, um, she, uh, be, we became able to receive her, her, her thoughts as she was able to turn her thought, but the way, the way we talk about it is, is, uh, turning, turning your thought bubbles into speech bubbles. And, and those used to come from a device and now, and, or, uh, but, but, but now, now she has, she, she has language that she can express at this point. Um, most of the time, um, although many people, including, um, including speaking, communicating adults lose their speech mm-hmm. when dysregulated because speech is a really complex motor skill, right? So, in, in, including me, when I'm dysregulated, sometimes my words don't come out, and um, and this is that's pretty common. Um, and and so, just normalizing normalizing multimodal communication, like in the middle of a meeting routinely I'll say to my staff like I'm gonna start typing in the zoom box I'm gonna start you know and, and just normalizing that uh, for everybody um so but anyway back to back to back to Luna so um she 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 has self-advocacy skills that I think are well beyond her developmental uh, uh, uh projections she'll walk into a room and she'll say mama I need vestibular input <laughs> Yeah, she's amazing. Anyway, and she'll say something like, "I love it." Uh, yeah, I mean, she's 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 amazing, and she 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 has an awareness of how she thinks because she was modeled language for that. Um, and so, you know, some people might say, "Well, you know, you're you're raising her to you know think or communicate differently than her peer." I don't, you know, I, she I, is. That's not what this is about. She's right. Is it right? So, so I, I want her to I want her to be authentic. 
I want her to show up as her true self. So for me, because I, I've, I've adopted this approach that we live in a lunacentric world and we adapt her environment um, and we adapt like even the demands in her environment to, to, to co-regulate, um, you know, we, we opt out of a lot of things um, and, and that's okay. Um, and that's not the message that, you know, I grew up in the, right. in, in the eighties, like, you know, you, you that's not the message, you know, you, you, you don't quit, you know, you do the thing. Why? You fit in or else. Exactly. And so it's really, I think about um, finding people who energetically uh, make you feel safe and that, so safety is, is a, is a, is a core value of mine. Um, and in our house, we talk about that a lot. So Luna will like meet a person and she'll be like, mama, that person feels safe bucket. Uh, they're my people. Like she's able to, she's able wow. to like, to trust that, like trust that intuition. Cause I think what happens all too often is that young kids have a sense about something like this is not for me this environment I don't feel good here I'm getting some message I'm getting some vibe or I'm getting like verbally told something that makes me feel uncomfortable and then the adults in the world all too often are like suck it up do the thing and and that's not healthy it, and it's not healthy in so many ways and it's not safe either by the way exactly I mean, think about it in a larger context for all kids I all kids need absolutely this. agree you know all kids need to learn to trust their intuition. When you feel mm -hmm. safe, you leave. Because when you don't, you, you, you're at risk of being in situations that are, are, are really bad. And uh, it all, all too often, messages are about compliance. You know, this is the rule, top down, and you comply. And then if, you're, if your limbic system, like the part of your brain that is like assessing safe, not safe, if you are constantly overriding that, that's not healthy either. I mean, it's a good, it's a useful skill, I think, like when I'm dysregulated and I have the ability to like think my way out of it. I'm glad I have that, those skills, but they don't work a hundred percent of the time. And if I don't have any other skills, um, including to leave an environment, um, that's not healthy. So it's really, it's top down regulation and it's bottom up regulation and, and it's, it's, it's trusting yourself. So in a really simplified example, and this was, this happened commonly in my childhood and it happens to a lot of my patients. So I'm a little kid and I say, Oh, it's loud in here. And an adult says, it's not loud. Mm. I'm like, Oh, all right. I guess, I guess. And you know, uh, or, or if, if, uh, if you have the kind of brain where your facial expression doesn't match um, what the stereotype of an emotion looks. So like I have, sometimes I have like a kind of a, if I'm thinking my face looks kind of blank. Um, and so as a kid, I would often get, why are you so sad? What's wrong? Like, what, what about eye contact? I have to bring up yeah. eye contact here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So um, uh, I, I was taught explicitly including in medical school, you know, the way that you make people feel like you're paying attention and listening is you make eye contact. So I used to like make like sometimes hyper intense eye contact and it was really like, I feel really creepy. And weird. <laughs> yeah, really kind of creepy. Right. Um, but most, then I kind of figured out that I could look right between eyebrows and, uh, and I, I, I really didn't know that not everybody did that. 
Um, there were like the, there, there were these, you know, you, you learn these rules. Um, or I, no, but, I remember- but I'm sorry, but I want to go back just a little bit on the eye yeah. contact because eye contact is often stressed um, in therapy of autistic kids. There yeah. are reasons why they're not making eye contact. Absolutely. And so you, you want to, um, you, you, know, you want to empower a human to do what needs doing. So uh, when I'm comfortable and feeling safe in, in an interpersonal, you know, dyad, I make eye contact. Um, when I don't, there's a reason, um, including that I actually listen better when I'm not making eye mm -hmm. contact. I take in information because auditory processing is, is, is hard for me. I didn't know that. Um, but to use my brain power to process what somebody is saying to me, I'm often looking away. Or if I'm thinking and organizing my thoughts, so you asked me about like, you know, what, what, how did you make it this far without anybody kind of noticing your brain patterns? Yeah, sometimes I ask myself that because I'm, I'm pretty significantly dyspraxic. I have both ideational dyspraxia, organizing ideas. That's why I kind of rant and monologue and I have no idea what I'm going to say until it like comes out and it's not really in the right order. Um, and uh, I look away to organize my thoughts. Um, or, uh, or, or, or a, a lot of people do that, by the way, a lot of people look away to organize their thoughts. Yes, they do. Some people um, on, on, with autism may not ever be able to maintain eye contact and talk at the same time. Right. And the goal is not like, you know, when, when, when professionals write, uh, you know, goals, therapeutic goals, they are often neurotypically biased and, and, and ableist. Uh, one really wonderful resource is Learn, Play, Thrive, um, which is uh, a, a, a podcast, a blog, a whole, whole set of resource continuing education um, for professionals um, of, of like, you know, really, if you want to be a neurodiversity affirming paradigm, you have to unlearn a lot of the things you were taught to do. And also just ask. Because if you know one person on the spectrum, you know one person on the spectrum. Hey, so so in 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 many ways, you know, when I what, what, my organization All Brains Belong, so what we we talk about is that we ask the people what they want and we do it, and we ask the people what stresses them out and we don't do it. It really can be that simple. Well, yes and no. So I want to go into that. I really want to dive into that. Let's start with All Brains Belong. Tell us how you started that and tell us all about it. And then I'm going to challenge you a little bit on it. Yeah, no, do it. Because the on. reason I'm going to start from the beginning, the reason the concern, not the concern, but the question I have is how do you balance meeting the needs of the individual with the needs of society or their environment? Because it's bi-directional. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so All Brains Belong is a nonprofit in Vermont uh, that I, I founded last year. Um, it's a community health organization that is dedicated to supporting the well-being and inclusion of people with all types of brains. And we do that through neurodiversity affirming healthcare, social connection programs for kids and adults, um, and educational training to shift the broader community conversation on neurodiversity and inclusion. And so um, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the, the story is, you know, shortly after my own autism diagnosis, um, I, I learned that the average life expectancy for an autistic person is 36 to 54 years. Oh. I was 37. Oh. I flipped my lid. I mean, I really like, I get all heated about it when I even remember what it felt like when I learned that as a, as, as, as a 37 year old who just learned I was autistic with a then four year old, like 
what? And, 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 and nobody was talking about this. And as a physician who at that point, I was mostly caring for neurodivergent kids and adults, often multi-generational families. I knew that so many of the defaults in society were not working for neurodivergent people. I was spending most of my time in the exam room helping people problem solve life outside the exam room, accessing school, accessing employment, dealing with social isolation, loneliness. Like it just, it made sense to me to say like, I gotta break out of this restrictive way of practicing healthcare in the system because you know there's there, there's all kinds of you know uh, research one of the, one of the uh, studies that was most influential to the design of my organization um, Darty et al in 2021 published a study on the barriers to accessing primary care for autistic adults and they talked about um, barriers in the environment barriers from the provider um, in insufficient knowledge and mm -hmm. attitudes and barriers from the system. The system is, is not designed for access for all people, right? You gotta pick up the phone to make an appointment. Uh, I never get healthcare because I never pick up the phone because it's too hard. Um, uh, the, so you gotta fill out the 20 page packet to become a new patient. You gotta wait in the waiting room with the fluorescent light. I mean, they're just the system. It's overwhelming. Um, it, it's overwhelming. Yeah. And so when you think about, um, uh, you know, so so we've got this uh, this average life expectancy of 36 to 54. Is that, is that a current statistic? That's a current statistic. I'll send you if you want to like pop them in. If you, if you have show notes and stuff, I'll send you the I'll send you yes, the, the citations. Yeah. It's um, horrifying. It, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And not dying from autism dying from premature cardiovascular disease mm. and suicide. Those are mm. the leading causes of death for autistic people. And, and so in my- I'm sorry, and drug overdoses too, because I know that's a, you know, unfortunately- Well, that is that is common. I don't know where that is in the lineup. I know okay. about the first two, yeah. So, 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 yeah, it's awful. And so the healthcare system is failing autistic people. And so uh, in my view, health is much more holistic than like coming in for your 15 minute visit. Health is everything. And right, so I'll go back for just a minute. So you started, you started saying three things and you went only through systems. Oh no. So, so, uh, so, so bucket number barriers. one is the barriers. I want, I want to make sure we go through the barriers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So bucket number one is the, the environment, mm -hmm. uh, whether that be, you know, the sensory processing aspects, you know, the clicking, you know, clicking clock, the fluorescent lights, the sound, you know, all that. Um, and, and, and the, and the communication barriers from the, in the environment. Bucket two is the provider, the provider having insufficient knowledge and attitudes. There's additional research showing that um, only, uh, only about a third of autistic adults even tell their primary care doc that they're autistic because they are specifically concerned about stigma. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then three is the system. So those are like the, in, in that Darty et al. study, those are, those are the three buckets. And so we used this to um, in, inform the design of our, of, of, of our organization. Um, when I think about um, health, I think about health as being not just medical care in these 15 minute visits, like solving problems like band-aids. Health is so much more than that, right? So, so, so to do anything for the neurodivergent community, you have to do everything. It's, 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 it's 
we got to make friends. We got to have jobs that are not trying to break your brain. Um, we, 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 we have to shift the attitudes in the environment. It's, it's, it's culture change. Um, and so we do all of it. We do all of it. Um, and, 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 and cause you have to. That is unbelievable. That is just, I mean, go you. It's amazing. Thank, thank you. You know, it's, it's amazing. It, it's, it's, and, 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 and when you think about like uh, the, the other shocking statistic is that um, as many as 80% of autistic adults are unemployed, including people with college degrees. Or underemployed. Or underemployed. So that's unemployed. And then, there, and then, and then of, of, of everyone else, there's underemployment. And then people who, you know, even who work full time are not me, likely to not be thriving when you're in an environment that is not designed for you and you, you're not having your access needs met. And by access needs, I mean um, anything that anyone needs to fully and meaningfully participate in their lives. Um, and, and, and everyone has access needs. So, Absolutely. you know, yeah. And so, you know, I think it was about it, the, acknowledging that the medical system is not working for autistic people. Um, we've got literature about here's why it's not working. So let's make it work. Let's make it work by rethinking, reimagining what's possible um, and, and, and trying out all these different ways to provide care and community. Um, you know, I, I, I think that uh, breaking out of the restrictive way of practicing medicine, I don't have a bureaucracy. Um, we're small enough to be flexible and nimble to meet the needs um, of, of, of our patients, of our broader community, of our staff, um, and just really have the, 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 the driving cultural belief that we want an environment where everyone can show up as their true selves. That is, and, that is so beautiful. Can you, can you tell me again the... the, um, the information for your website allbrainsbelong.org that's easy enough to remember i'm just gonna mention it in the show notes as cool well. yeah allbrainsbelong.org that's it no vermont anymore um no so it's it's, it's all brains belong the, the name of the organization is all brains belong vermont um but it the the website is just allbrainsbelong.org keep it simple it is simple um, and, and this should be a model for, for everybody else to use, right? I mean, there's a lot of resources that are not specific to Vermont. Right, and we, and we nothing is specific to Vermont. Um, so so in, in fact, our community programs are open to everyone. Most of them are virtual. So regardless of where you live, you can participate in them. So we have social connection programs for kids and adults. Oh, that's so cool. So yeah, like for example, for online communities, not in exactly. person, I didn't understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for example, um, one of our uh, community programs called Kid Connections, um, we do customized matchmaking for kids age four to 17. Um, we find, we, 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 there's, a, there's a profile to complete or to have your parent complete for you or your caregiver complete for you. Um, and we, we do customized matches one-on-one -on -one or in small groups based on shared interests. Wow. We, we, get, we get a lot of inquiries, people saying, you know, do you do social skills groups? I'm like, no, most social skills groups are ableist. We connect mm. people based on their shared interests and, they, and, 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 and we meet their access needs and they get dopa sparkle and <laughs> dopa it's sparkle. great. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier, right? When you find your people, you don't need to be told what to do. It's you don't exactly need to right. be told what to do. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah. When we first launched, um, I ran a. Uh, I, 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 when we first launched, it was just me. Right. We didn't have a staff. We just, you know, I, I raised enough money to pay the rent and get liability insurance, and then I just started working as a volunteer and doing all the things. So I'm like seeing patients, and in between patients, I'm running 
groups about topics that I don't know anything about. So I, I, I used to run a, a Pokemon interest group, kids eight to 11. And I thought it was going to be really hard because I don't know anything about Pokemon, but I like my monotropic focus is brains. And so I was very interested in like how the brains of these participants were engaging with this. And so we had speaking communicators, non-speaking communicators, and they figured it out. You know, they were showing their, their cards, they were info dumping their stories about their favorite Pokemon characters. And it was magical. And I saw parents in the background crying because Aww. their kids had, had not had any friends and now they have friends. I mean, it was just magic and it wasn't hard. None of this is hard. Yeah, you make it sound so easy, but I, I can hear people saying, okay, you have a small practice in Vermont, you know, for you to meet people's access needs. What would you say to someone who, say, is part of a practice which doesn't have those resources, which is, right. say, a big practice in a small environment that they can't really control, then what? Right, right. So so when I do trainings for healthcare practices looking to become more neuroinclusive, the first tip I give everyone is to think through your workflow. Every state, every step that the patient or family is going through, and if there is one way to do each step, that's a default. If you can take each step of your workflow and introduce one or two extra options for even a couple of things, you have gone so far in improving neuroinclusion. For example, the waiting room. So maybe you, you're not going to create a separate waiting room. Maybe you don't have resources for that. But maybe you can give people the ability to wait in their car and you can call them when it's time to come in. Or you give people the option of waiting in an exam room instead of the waiting room. Like maybe there are some things that can be done. Um, or when it comes to making an appointment, um, if the only way to make an appointment is to pick up the phone and call, well, people for whom that is difficult are not actually going to be accessing healthcare. And if the point of healthcare is for people to actually access and engage in it, it's not working. Right. So, so maybe, maybe we think about some other way. Maybe, maybe we allow patients to email. Um, maybe we, you know, because by the way, you can do that. You just have to write up a form and you make sure people understand the risks and they can opt into regular email. The right. thing about a patient portal is that um, people for whom it is hard to remember your password, that's the thing. Like this is, these, these are barriers. They're barriers right. to access. Right, right. No, that's absolutely true. I want to talk about common health challenges because you you know you mentioned to me that you have um, you have patients that aren't even diagnosed with autism and then they come to you with their special health challenges. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I think I I uh, one of the things that I am most grateful for my brain is that um, what, uh, often uh, a, a autistic brains derive safety from predictable systems and can like zoom out and pattern match. Mm -hmm. um, and that has helped me so much in being a doctor 
right? So, so I knew about many of the, like the list, the laundry list of things that were trained in medical school that are associated or, you know, more likely to occur in autistic people. You know, the gastrointestinal things, the dysautonomia, the migraine, the sleep apnea. I knew about the list, but I was never taught why. I just memorized the list. And I think a lot of people do. Turns out this is not like a rote list of, of things. Random. It's There's not random. a system and it's connective tissue. So in my practice, 70% of my practice has a pattern of multi-organ system connective tissue. The stuff that holds us together since now we have a non-medical audience. Um, um, so, so this involves the musculoskeletal system, skin, the airway, the blood vessels, the, you know, the organs that can get more stretched out than other people, explaining the chronic constipation, for example. Um, and of my autistic adults, 95% have this pattern. When you say this pattern, what exactly are you referring to? So this pattern of something in the connective tissue bucket, something in the gastrointestinal bucket, something in the blood vessel bucket, something in the uh, nutrient absorption bucket, something in the face jaw bucket, it's connective tissue everywhere. And so I have to, I'll, what I'll do is I'll send you this document. I would be fascinated to see what you see in children, especially uh, teenagers, since a lot of times this starts presenting in adolescence. Um, so, so, so it's, 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 it's almost all of my autistic adult patients. It's interesting that you say connective tissue because I've heard other explanations. Like if you think of the functional medicine people, Yep. You know, they look at, say, the neuroendocrine system, they look at brain inflammation, they look at leaky gut, you know, all of these kind of approaches. I'm not sure what the underlying pathophysiology is, but seeing it that way is very different than I think most physicians do medicine nowadays. Yes. So the other thing that is really, um, and, and it's, when we think about that life expectancy statistic, 36 to 54 with premature cardiovascular disease being one of the leading causes, I think that the healthcare system, medical education as a whole is not understanding autistic mm -hmm. physiology. This is, I think, a neuroimmune mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. that's affecting connective tissue in the whole body. And so when someone has a problem that gets referred, let's say, to, to, to a specialist, because that's how our system is designed, right? The fragmentation right. Of, of expertise. Um, and the problem is that sometimes the standard medical management of some parts of this big constellation that they all have, the standard management parts sometimes of, 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 of one of the components make some of the other components worse. So for example, if someone has uh, dysautonomia, um, an autonomic nervous system, automatic nervous system uh, processing difference, including a condition called POTS that's very common in autistic people, mm -hmm. um, um, uh, cause mostly your audience is mostly non-medical, right? I should like explain. Um, it's, it's, it's a combination, it's, but when I say autistic, I would say neurodivergent at this point, because I think these problems are more common in the larger. Yeah, no, I agree. Part. I absolutely agree. Um, yeah. so, 
So uh, when, when we think about dysautonomia, one of the standard management is compression. Um, so like compression socks or compression bands to get you know blood flow back to the heart, up to the brain. And if you also have really stretchy blood vessels, if you compress them, you cut off blood flow. So for example, um, when uh, uh, I, I, I have this, this thing personally, um, uh, we, and, 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 and there's no name for it. Uh, we, in our practice, we call it all the things because all mostly things. all the people have all the things. So I have all the things. And so um, when I moved my office and I was working from home a lot, um, I, I put a weighted lap pad on my lap because it like helped me from a sensory regulation standpoint and it helped me from a like core stability standpoint and helped me from a blood flow standpoint. Yeah, it turns out my feet turned purple because I was home and I had my socks off. I didn't feel it. Oh, good information. Um, so there's that. Um, uh, when people have chronic pain, they often get put on a muscle relaxant. Well, if you have floppy, stretchy connective tissue, for the YouTube viewers, mm. um, if you have floppy, stretchy connective tissue um, and you're on a muscle relaxant, well, uh, you made your, maybe your connective tissue floppier and maybe now your airway collapses and now you have worse sleep apnea, which is, in, which is then making your dysautonomia worse, making your migraines worse. It's like all the things. So in order to manage the whole person, you have to zoom out and say, right. well, what are the contraindications for some parts of all the things? And what are the best practices for each part of all the things that are not contraindications for some of the other things? And that's what you do for the people. So that's right, what we do. It's here. so hard. It's so hard. And today, I, I whine about this all the time on this podcast about these 10, 15 minute visits. You cannot do this. That's 10, right. 15 it, minutes. You can't. That's right. That's right. And it's really interesting because primary care physicians or primary care clinicians um, uh, 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 are, 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 are the people who are going to see this, but the system gets in the way. The system doesn't give you the time and space to use your brain because there are a lot of pattern matching systems thinkers in primary care. People are seeing this. Right. Um, like when I do trainings for healthcare providers about this, people are like, oh, this is the medically unexplained systems. It is not unexplained. It's this. Um, right. And it, it's frustrating. I think it's frustrating from a patient standpoint, super frustrating, but it's also frustrating from the clinician standpoint. Yes. Right. Yes. And that's why, you know, they call them the heart sink patients. You go in the room and you see a patient has POTS and chronic fatigue and Ah, oh, what am I going to do? I have 10 minutes and I'm, I'm not going to be able to help them right. in that time period. Right. And so one of the other things that we are finding here, so first off, um, the, that population is much more likely to be neurodivergent. Right. So there's, there's that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we, we bring patients together it's, it's optional, um, but it's, 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 it's a really radical reimagining of healthcare. We find that our patients who engage in our social community programs, they're doing medically much better. Right. Because connection is the path to health. Absolutely. But it also gives you a chance to not just find your people socially, but find your support group. That's exactly right. And it's not, in addition to support, it's, um, you know, I really think about what we're doing here as a community village of learning and healing together, um, because you're, 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 you're learning from 
you're, 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 you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we have a, we have an all the things task force here um, that is in, in, interdisciplinary <laughs> clinicians um, and patients really elevating uh, the, 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 the value of lived experience. And that's how we've kind of figured out a whole bunch of things. So for example, knowing uh, what some of the standard management um, uh, strategies are for, um, for chronic fatigue syndrome, for example. Um, and since that is the same thing as long COVID um, and long COVID is more common in neurodivergent people, um, you know, you, you, you can apply these things. It's really the reducing of the silos, re right. like, like reducing seeing, that Stepping back and seeing the forest for the trees. Yes, exactly. Especially because some of the trees have internal conflicting access needs. So, right. so we can talk about conflicting access needs in terms of interpersonal. So in, like in my house, uh, if my five-year-old has an access need to make a lot of noise to discharge her energy, and I have an access need for complete quiet in order to think, that's conflicting access needs, but I know that and she knows that. And so we have figured out over time a strategy. Like if she's going to make noise, I'm going to put my earphones in. Right. And she's, she knows it has nothing to do with her. It's about my access needs. Um, and so many times people get into interpersonal conflicts over conflicting access needs, but that's, there's not an understanding that that's what it is. Um, it's, it's, you know, someone in power has a, an access need that they have turned their access need into policy or rules. Right, and that and, trumps you know, the needs of the individual. Exactly. So that, right. that happens all the time. That's how a lot of, uh, a lot of neurodivergent people get fired from their jobs over conflicting access needs with their supervisor. First off, that's like a super common pattern. Um, but uh, the, 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 the internal conflicting access needs. So like if I have an access need for compression at the same time that I have an access need for blood flow, internal conflicting access needs. So it's like, you, you, as, 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 as a physician, figuring out what helps like a little bit in this bucket and what helps a little bit in this bucket and turns out people get better. Right. Right. That's so, so important. And again, it's, it's, it's a big struggle with the silo approach, right? Yes. It's common. It's common for neurodivergent people to react atypically. Or um, it's, 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 uh, it's also very common that um, the automatic nervous system responses um, are going to, rather than, um, you know, we think about that we want to stay like even keel, you may not be wired to do that. It may be like, you know, big sympathetic nervous system response and then crash, like that might be what goes on. And rather than fight it, fight it within you, 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 would, you figure out what in your environment is making this happen. Uh, like for example, um, so I have POTS. And so um, I was giving a talk to an unsafe audience uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, and when I say, when I say unsafe audience, I, I mean the paradigm that they're operating in. So um, I, when, when, for example, when I, I talked about the barriers to healthcare, um, a, a, pro, a, a provider's lens, the paradigm in which they're operating, that is a barrier. If someone is seeing you through a deficit-based lens, mm. I can feel that. I can wow. feel that. It's, it's, anyway, so this was an audience that was not in a neurodiversity-affirming paradigm. And my heart rate shot up to 154. Um, oh. And I, like, I, I, it hadn't occurred to me. I'm like, oh, 
uh, if there are some things in my environment that I have some control over, and it's a major, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, I have many, many aspects of privilege, of course, and this is one of them to have autonomy over opting out of, of a lot of the default routines and workflows that are not good for my health. And so a lot of the management of all the things is about, um, empowering people to sort of discern safe from not safe and to the extent that they do have some autonomy over the environments that they are exposed to that makes such a difference for health so wait what did you do did you stop talking i finished the talk but i'm never talking to that kind of audience oh, okay. okay okay so i want to go back I cortically overrided and Got i finished it. the talk Got but it. then i'm like oh I don't, don't go to, back. I'm not going back to an audience like that. So good for you. I want to go back. I actually read an article recently um, about diagnostic overshadowing and the problem of people who have mental health problems and they come to the system and they get seen as, oh, you are bipolar. Could be the same thing. This is the fear of disclosing, right? The That's autistic right. diagnosis or in any other neurodivergent diagnosis. And then you said, oh, these disorders, these multi-system disorders that people can't put their finger on exactly one thing, right, are more common in the neurodivergent populations. I want to hear your thoughts on how to overcome the problem of it's all in your head. Right, right. So in my practice, there is so much, um, we spend so much uh, time and effort helping people unlearn those over-rehearsed neural pathways, people who have received the message of it's all in your head and, 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 and zooming out and saying, that was just wrong. That was just wrong. Like that, that thing that that person said, like they just don't know what they're talking about. Like, like that, especially because of the power dynamic when a healthcare provider may not even actually use those words, but energetically, that's mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. feeling like the healthcare trauma of being dismissed and invalidated. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's almost all of my new patients come in with stories like that. And so teaching people that that thing that you experience, that's not only, not only do we have an explanation for it, but it's almost the entire practice has that same thing you have. I mean, that alone, people start crying, like, Aww. just like, 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 oh, this thing for decades that I've been, I've, that I've been struggling with. And I knew there was something and it's, it's, it's about like reconnecting with your intuition. Those, you know, that, 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 that stuff that we, you know, I give the example of the, it's not cold. It's not bright. It's not loud. Like it's that you inter you interrupt that. Right. You, you, you stop letting people gaslight you. Exactly. And the thing about gaslighting is that uh, when you are part of community that you feel safe in, those comments don't have as much impact. Right. Because you know it's not just you. It's not just you. It's not just you. It's your physiology. It's your immune system. It's your limbic system, both trying to keep you safe. It's gonna get your attention. Um, a lot of times, uh, I, uh, you know, we 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 think about almost like uh, neurodivergent systems are like the canary in the coal mine. So if you're taking in all this extra information from the environment, your threat detection is is gonna sound the alarm, and you can either listen to it or you can cortically override, but 
to the extent that it's safe, you should listen to it. Right. And, and this is true for so many people. I mean, if you look at our medical system, we could go on a whole separate tangent on how broken it is for so many people. But even if you look at just all of neurodivergent, that's a fifth of the population. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. A lot of people. So disproportionately affected by these multi-system problems. That's right. Right. That's simple and answers. Yes. Right. And so that's that's where the reimagining comes in with 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 group work, with task force, which engaging the patients and discovering the, the, the strategies that help them. It's the um, assembling the interdisciplinary expertise. Um, it's it's uh, it's really discerning what's a helpful from an unhelpful intervention. I mean, it's 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 really a complete rehaul. And it doesn't cost a lot of money. It just takes a paradigm shift. Right. And I'm saying, even if you don't have, I'm, I'm talking from the physician standpoint, because I, I know the pain. I feel the pain of physicians who don't have a lot of time. Um, you can have them come back. And That's right. As patients, you have to be ready to come back. You, we're not going to be able to overhaul the entire medical reimbursement system right now. That's right. That's you know, right. You can either find somebody you can pay out of pocket and spend a lot of time with them, or you can go through your insurance and have multiple visits. I have no other answer because there's no other answer. Right? You, so you can't do this in 15 minutes. You can't, but multiple yes. 15 minutes with listening to the person and validating the person, you can get very, very far. And I'm also a big believer in building a team. Yes. And you have to be able to say, I don't know. Right. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I don't know. And I'm going to work with you to figure yes. this out. Yes. I'm on your team. I can be. Your I'm team on your team. Yes. That's exactly right. So, 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 so many times and, you know, being trained in the traditional healthcare system, like I, I mean, I think, I think it's part of the hidden curriculum of medical education is that when something is not the thing that you were taught in this rigid tunnel, there, there's there's this um, cultural practice of being like, that's not a thing. Whereas saying, I don't know about that, but I will learn about that. Like that doesn't cost anything. It takes humility. It takes humility. Right. That's not and, necessarily easy, but it's so, so important. Right. I, I want to, did you say there was a group of people working on this and, and you could get yeah, some to that? Please join. How do we find yes. this? I need to know how to, how to find this. Yeah. I'm going to um, write I'll down and you. share in the liner notes. Yeah. I'll something send you can tell me right now where it has to be like a long link that. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's got a long link. So I'll, I'll, I'll okay. send it to you. No, I would love for you to be involved in this. What is this called? Cause I want my listeners. To we literally call too. it the, all the things task force, all the things task force. I want to be invited. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Do you have any more access need hacks for us? Things that, things that practices, you know, that aren't, you know, as flexible as yours could do. So, all right. So we talked about number one, the waiting room. Mm -hmm. um, I think that number two, is how people communicate between visits, thinking about that intentionally. When I practiced in general primary care, um, uh, and, in, and so, 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 you know, I, 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 worked, I worked for five years in a uh, traditional primary care environment um, in, in, in a federally qualified health center. Um, and and my, my residency practice also, I got these messages that like, you can't email with patients. It's a, and just like, it was, it's a brain rule, not a world rule. I knew there was something 
off about that message. And I like researched it and got a lawyer and like really built the system to make, that's what people want to do. They want to text and they want to email. That's what right. the people so want to the, the issue is HIPAA compliance and their HIPAA you compliant You got to figure out yeah. how mm-hmm. do you build your system? So, and, and how do you um, engage in informed consent, just like a medical procedure? So if you are clearly delineating um, what you're doing, so, you know, it's encrypted at my end, but it's not encrypted at your end. And if your phone is stolen, you got health stuff. Also, these are off limits topics. Um, like we've really kind of built a system. It's like, all right, this is how, this is what we're able to offer you. And if you want to opt into it, you can. You give people autonomy. You give people autonomy to make their own decisions. And if they're saying that I'm going to take a chance that my phone gets stolen and has emails replied to you, then, then I'm going to sign that because I can't pick up the phone and call you. Right. But you can do apps. My favorite app. I'm not, you know, I'm not getting paid by them. (laughs) I don't do that. Um, Is Doximity. Doximity is awesome because you can have it hooked up to your work number. So it comes from your work number. Yep. And they have a HIPAA compliant texting. You can't go back and forth, but it will tell you your text has been read and it's been sent in an encrypted HIPAA compliant way. And Doximity has the video. You can call a patient yep. up even like say after hours and see the problem. Oh my gosh, yep. there's so much great access through the Doximity app. I am so grateful to them. Right, so it's really about, you gotta be a little bit creative and you, it's, um, it's, it's and when you're in the system and the system just says no, as opposed to, well, let me like try this on. Maybe it doesn't cost a lot of money because that thing is free, right? right? So, so maybe, maybe we just have to, you know, instead of saying, well, this is the way we do it, you know, for 40 years, we walk uphill barefoot both ways, like all that just, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. And I think the key is to look at the individual patient, right? And listen, and for the individual patient from the patient's perspective is to don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. Yep. Right. Um, but, but, but much, much like, um, you know, we talked about how, how in many environments it is unsafe to unmask in many healthcare environments, it is unsafe to, you know, there's the healthcare trauma of all of these, like these accumulated negative experiences that you know, even just 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 even walking into the room, people have a trauma response to all of their past unhelpful healthcare encounters. And so you you know, ahead of time, there are some strategies to let people express themselves. Mm-hmm. Let's say, for example, um, if someone best expresses themselves in writing, and you give them an opportunity to send information ahead of time in a, you know, a pre-visit planning form or an email or a text message. You know, we have, we have patients who, um, you know, they send their secure text messages, you know, they send like a bunch of them and we read them during the appointment. It's all about just transparency. You're, this is what we have capacity to offer. Um, and you're, you're welcome to communicate however it works for you. Right. And there are ways that you can communicate as a practice that you are trying to accommodate a wide range of needs. It's it's the culture of your practice as well that you can control. Right. And, um, you know, when we, I think about what we do as inclusive design, it's not true universal design because there's going to be a finite capacity because Mm -hmm. of conflicting access needs. For example, 
Um, uh, so, so, so now it's myself and my nurse practitioner colleague. Um, but uh, when, when, when we're seeing patients, we can't answer the phone. Like I can't actually pick up the ringing phone while I'm seeing a patient and we don't have an in-house support staff. So my patients know transparently, even before they become a patient, we don't answer the phone. It goes right, right. to voicemail. We can't actually do that thing. And so mm -hmm. if it's your access need to be talking on the phone, that's not, that you may not choose this. This may not be the fit for you. And that's okay. It's about transparency, disclosure, and people, and just empowering people, respecting their autonomy to make choices that work for them. Right. Say what you can do, say what you can't do, but express the desire to be as accessible you. as possible. Yeah, that's right. 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 We're because trying it is bi-directional. Yes. And um, everything has trade-offs. And when you communicate about that, I mean, it, it makes sense. Right. Um, so, and, and there are some, you know, there are some true advantages to receiving healthcare in the system with its resources, et cetera. Um, and, you know, everything, everything has trade-offs. Right. Um, so, right. so, 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 so that, um, but, you know, I think the question that you were going to ask me that you Oops. didn't ask me was something like, I don't know, it was something about like, you were challenging me on something. I don't remember what it was. I'm happy to Oh, I was, we, we, really, we really answered it, that there, it can be hard to make full accommodations. You may have, like you said, conflicting access needs. And you really expressed yeah. that very clearly. But I want to pivot that to people listening who are like, okay, I don't, I'm not a doctor. I don't have a practice. I'm a regular person. What can I take from this in my life? And that would be, how can you help people who are neurodivergent? What are things that you can do? What are things that you, you should try to avoid doing? I want to make it applicable to people who are listening who are saying not yeah. clinicians. Yeah, yeah. So I think that the way you see the world is ultimately the single biggest thing that is gonna influence all of your interactions. So if you see the world that we all have different brains that do things differently, as opposed to that there is one correct way to do X or one correct way to do Y, everything else is gonna follow from that. So there's, there's that. And so, you know, you can't, you can't just like change your worldview overnight. You, you, you expose yourself to information. You listen to your podcast, you read, you know, you, you, you might read books or watch YouTube videos or whatever it is. You collect the information from a variety of perspectives and you, you know, you integrate it to the extent that things connect for you. So there's that. So there's the, there's like working on the paradigm aspect by learning, learning from people with lived experience. There's that. Um, knowing about conflicting access needs is, 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 I think, I, I think that's such, such part of the key to the universe. Um, so like even in my house, for example, um, uh, my husband has an access need uh, to not be interrupted. Like it's a, it's a, it's a trigger for him. I have the kind of brain that interrupts all day because uh, impulse control is hard. Um, working memory is limited. Um, and, you know, I just blurt out, I'm gonna forget the idea. But once I realized it was an access need situation, um, and he realized that this is like, this is a brain thing, it's part of my disability. Um, uh, we, we, I figured out that, you know, I can grab a whiteboard and, or a piece of paper and like jot down my idea, because if I'm going to pick one thing to focus on, I'm going to try not to interrupt him. Um, cause, 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 cause I care about this relationship. Right, right, right. I love that that's bi, you know, bi-directional and it's not just, okay, this is this one person then we have to do everything just for them because, we all have to work together. And like I said, there can exactly. be conflicts 
It doesn't have to be rocket science, but you just use the word disability. And I think all this time we've really been talking about ways that our brains are different. And I really like framing it as different as opposed to a negative thing. Right. And, and so, I mean, this is a bigger conversation around, uh, you know, I think, I think many of us were socialized to have a negative association with the word disability. Um, there is, um, you know, it's, it's, when we think about person first versus identity first language, um, there are people for whom disability is part of their identity. Um, it's not. It's not part of mine. Not not right now at this point point in my life. Um, and so uh, I I I I that so my language just shifts in terms of 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 me personally. There are certainly people who identify as disabled, and that's part of their identity. Um, I more think about disability being relative. So there are going to be things that are hard for me. Even when I am fully accommodated, there are still going to be things that are hard. And that's okay. But that's a paradigm shift, sort of accepting that since we all have different brains that do things differently, it's okay that some things I'm just not going to be able to do. But my amount of disability is going to be relative to, to the barriers to access in the environment. Um, you know, when viewed through, um, you know, there's lots of models of disability and the social model of disability is, 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 not, it, is not perfect. But the idea of, you know, with visible disabilities, we can clearly see that, like, like let's say if I'm, a, I'm a wheelchair user and I approach a building with a ramp, I'm going to have less disability than if I approach a building that does not have a ramp. Um, with invisible disability, it's the same thing. Um, and even when there are, you know, accommodations placed, there's still going to be things that are hard. And so um, at, at All Brains Belong, we talk about a culture of interdependence as being mm. really critical. I think that independence is overly glorified. Yes, even I from young childhood. Prezant, yes, Dr. Prezant and I talked about this. that part of you. Yeah, yeah I, totally, so I totally agree. So, you know, it is totally normal to be connected to other people and rely on other people. And that's just, it's part of health. And I want to thank you so, so much for doing this with me. I am so excited to have had this opportunity and I'm going to share the links that you mentioned in, in the show notes. Cool. I'll send, I'll, send you, I'll, I'll send you all the stuff. And actually the other thing I'll send you, I'll send you two other things. Mm -hmm. um, one is um, a recording of a free talk I gave in the spring about uh, the healthcare system's role in perpetuating the stigma of autism. Oh. Um, and it, it goes through like the history of how did autism get into the DSM and like, you know, what, like, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a sordid tale. And then, you know, this is the narrative that gets perpetuated by, 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 by healthcare providers in the system. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll send you that. I'll also send you, um, we have a recording of uh, like the introduction of an all the things task force meeting that it like just talks about the project and what the patterns are. So it's a, it's a YouTube video about that. So I'll send you that too. That is awesome. I, I cannot get over how you are changing the world. <laughs> it's amazing. You're making it a better place. It's just, I am so impressed with everything you're doing. And I am so, so grateful to you to spending the time with me today talking about it. I really am. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure.
Absolutely. And, you know, listeners can, we, we'd love for people to engage with us. All of our community programs are free and they're almost all virtual. Um, so, I'll, so, so, so I'll send, I'll send you, I'll send you links to all that stuff too. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I'm making a postscript here because at the very beginning, I had a um, tip of the tongue phenomenon and couldn't remember a specific word that I wanted to offer in an alternative to neurotypical that I had heard about recently. And that word is neuromajority. Um, it might seem like a fine point, and it actually may be a fine point, it may be a matter of taste. Um, but the word neuromajority means the um, way most people's brains are. It's very neutral. Um, and I asked Dr. Hauser after the talk what she thought about making a postscript, and she said I should. And her comments were, neuromajority is such a good word, I always forget to use it. As much as I don't think there's a typical brain, that's only been a shift in my thinking in the past few years as I read more and thought more. So we're adding the word neuromajority as an option to neurotypical. I personally think both are fine, um, but I was having such a brain freeze, such a tip of the tongue phenomenon. At the very least, I wanted to let you know what I heard I was trying to think of, and that word was neuromajority. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.